Chapter 7 of Headlong Hall. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 7 The Walk. It was an old custom in Headlong Hall to have breakfast ready at eight and continue it till two, that the various guests might rise at their own hour breakfast when they came down, and employ the morning as they thought proper, the squire only expecting that they should punctually assemble at dinner. During the whole of this period, the little butler stood sentinel at a side table near the fire, copiously furnished with all the apparatus of tea, coffee, chocolate, milk, cream, eggs, rolls, toast, muffins, bread, butter, potted beef, cold fowl and partridge, ham, tongue and anchovy. The Reverend Dr. Gaster found himself rather queasy in the morning, therefore preferred breakfasting in bed on a mug of buttered ale and an anchovy toast. The three philosophers made their appearance at eight and enjoyed La Promesse de Poulet. Mr. Foster proposed that, as it was a fine frosty morning, and they were all good pedestrians, they should take a walk to Tremadoch to see the improvements carrying on in that vicinity. This being readily acceded to, they began their walk. After their departure appeared Squire Headlong and Mr. Milestone, who agreed, over their muffins and partridge, to walk together to a ruined tower within the precincts of the squire's grounds, which Mr. Milestone thought he could improve. The other guests dropped in by ones and twos, and made their respective arrangements for the morning. Mr. Panscope took a little ramble with Mr. Cranium, in the course of which the former professed a great enthusiasm for the science of craniology, and a great deal of love the beautiful Cephalus, adding a few words about his expectations. The old gentleman was unable to withstand this triple battery, and it was accordingly determined, after the manner of the heroic age in which it was deemed superfluous to consult the opinions and feelings of the lady as to the manner in which she should be disposed of, that the lovely Miss Cranium should be made the happy bride of the accomplished Mr. Panscope. We shall leave them for the present to settle preliminaries, while well, we accompany the three philosophers in their walk to Tremadoc. The vale contracted as they advanced, and when they had passed the termination of the lake, their road wound along a narrow and romantic pass, through the middle of which an impetuous torrent dashed over vast fragments of stone. The pass was bordered on both sides by perpendicular rocks, broken into the wildest forms of fantastic magnificence. These are indeed said Mr. Escort. Fragments of a demolished world. Yet they must be feeble images of the valleys of the Andes, where the philosophic eye may contemplate in their utmost extent the effects of that tremendous convulsion which destroyed the perpendicularity of the poles and inundated this globe with that torrent of physical evil from which the greater torrent of moral evil has issued, that will continue to roll on with an expansive power and an accelerated impetus till the whole human race shall be swept away in its vortex. The precession of the equinoxes, said Mr. Foster, will gradually ameliorate the physical state of our planet, till the ecliptic shall again coincide with the equator, and the equal diffusion of light and heat over the whole surface of the earth typify the equal and happy existence of man, who will then have attained the final step of pure and perfect intelligence. It is by no means clear, said Mr. Jenkinson, 
that the axis of the earth was ever perpendicular to the plane of its orbit or that it ever will be so explosion and convulsion are necessary to the maintenance of either hypothesis for laplace has demonstrated that the precession of the equinoxes is only a secular equation of a very long period which of course proves nothing either on one side or the other they now emerged by a winding ascent from the vale of hlanberis and after some little time arrived at beth Gelert, proceeding through the sublimely romantic pass of Aberglaslin, their road led along the edge of Triath moor a vast arm of the sea which they then beheld in all the magnificence of the flowing tide another five miles brought them to the embankment which has long since been completed and which by connecting the two counties of Marianith and Carnarvon excludes the sea from an extensive tract. The embankment, which was carried on at the same time from both the opposite coasts, was then very nearly meeting in the centre. They walked to the extremity of that part of it which was thrown out from the Carnarvonshire side. The tide was now ebbing. It had filled the vast basin within, forming a lake about five miles in length and more than one in breadth. As they looked upwards, with their backs to the open sea, they beheld a scene which no other in this country can parallel, and which the admirers of the magnificence of nature will ever remember with regret. Whatever consolation may be derived from the probable utility of the works which have excluded the waters from their ancient receptacle. Vast rocks and precipices, intersected with little torrents, form the barrier on the left, on the right, the triple summit of Moylwyn reared its majestic boundary. In the depth was that sea of mountains, the wild and stormy outline of the Snowdonian chain, with the giant Uithva towering in the midst. The mountain frame remains unchanged, unchangeable, but the liquid mirror it enclosed is gone. The tide ebbed with rapidity. The waters within, retained by the embankment, poured through its two points an impetuous cataract, curling and boiling in innumerable eddies, and making a tumultuous melody admirably in unison with the surrounding scene. The three philosophers looked on in silence, and at length unwillingly turned away, and proceeded to the little town of Tremadoc, which is built on land recovered in a similar manner from the sea. After inspecting the manufactories, and refreshing themselves at the inn on a cold saddle of mutton, and a bottle of sherry, they retraced their steps towards Headlong Hall, commenting as they went on the various objects they had seen. Mr. Escott. I regret that time did not allow us to see the caves on the seashore. There is one of which the depth is said to be unknown. There is a tradition in the country that an adventurous fiddler once resolved to explore it, that he entered and never returned. But the subterranean sound of a fiddle was heard at the farmhouse seven miles inland, it is therefore concluded that he lost his way in the labyrinth of caverns supposed to exist under the rocky soils of this part of the country mr jenkinson a supposition that must always remain in force unless a second fiddler equally adventurous and more successful should return with an accurate report of the true state of the fact mr foster what think you of the little colony we have just been inspecting a city, as it were, in its cradle. Mr. Escort. 
with all the weakness of infancy and all the vices of maturer age i confess the sight of those manufactories which have suddenly sprung up like fungus excrescences in the bosom of these wild and desolate scenes impressed me with as much horror and amazement as the sudden appearance of the stocking manufactory struck into the mind of rousseau when in a lonely valley of the alps he had just congratulated himself on finding a spot where man had never been mr foster the manufacturing system is not yet purified from some evils which necessarily attend it but which i conceive are greatly overbalanced by their concomitant advantages contemplate the vast sum of human industry to which this system so essentially contributes seas covered with vessels ports resounding with life profound researches scientific inventions complicated mechanisms canals carried over deep valleys and through the bosoms of hills employment and existence thus given to innumerable families and the multiplied comforts and conveniences of life diffused over the whole community mr escott you present to me a complicated picture of artificial life and require me to admire it seas covered with vessels every one of which contains two or three tyrants and from fifty to a thousand slaves ignorant gross perverted and active only in mischief ports resounding with life in other words with noise and drunkenness the mingled din of avarice intemperance and prostitution profound researches scientific inventions to what end to contract the sum of human wants to teach the art of living on a little to disseminate independence liberty and health no to multiply factitious desires to stimulate depraved appetites to invent unnatural wants to heap up incense on the shrine of luxury and accumulate expedients of selfish and ruinous profusion complicated machinery behold its blessings twenty years ago at the door of every cottage sat the good woman with her spinning-wheel the children if not more profitably employed than in gathering heath and sticks at least laid in a stock of health and strength to sustain the labours of maturer years where is the spinning-wheel now and every simple and insulated occupation of the industrious cottager wherever this boasted machinery is established the children of the poor are death-doomed from their cradles look for one moment at midnight into a cotton-mill amidst the smell of oil the smoke of lamps the rattling of wheels the dizzy and complicated motions of diabolical mechanism contemplate the little human machines that keep play with the revolutions of the ironwork robbed at that hour of their natural rest as of air and exercise by day observe their pale and ghastly features more ghastly in that baleful and malignant light and tell me if you do not fancy yourself on the threshold of virgil's hell where immediately cries were heard these were the loud wailing of infant souls weeping at the very entrance-way never had they had their share of life's sweetness for the dark day had stolen them from their mother's breasts and plunged them to death before their time as mr escott said this a little rosy-cheeked girl with a basket of heath on her head came tripping down the side of one of the rocks on the left the force of contrast struck even on the phlegmatic spirit of mr jenkinson and he almost inclined for a moment to the doctrine of deterioration mr escott continued mr escott nor is the lot of the parents more enviable 
sedentary victims of unhealthy toil they have neither the corporeal energy of the savage nor the mental acquisitions of the civilized man mind indeed they have none and scarcely animal life they are mere automata component parts of the enormous machines which administer to the pampered appetites of the few who consider themselves the most valuable portion of a state because they consume in indolence the fruits of the earth and contribute nothing to the benefit of the community mr jenkinson that these are evils cannot be denied but they have their counterbalancing advantages that a man should pass the day in a furnace and the night in a cellar is bad for the individual but good for others who enjoy the benefit of his labour mr escott by what right do they so mr jenkinson by the right of all property and all possession le droit de plus fort mr escott do you justify that principle mr jenkinson i neither justify nor condemn it it is practically recognized in all societies and though it is certainly the source of enormous evil i conceive it is also the source of abundant good or it would not have so many supporters mr escott that is by no means a consequence do we not every day see men supporting the most enormous evils which they know to be so with respect to others and which in reality are so with respect to themselves though an erroneous view of their own miserable self-interest induces them to think otherwise mr jenkinson good and evil exist only as they are perceived i cannot therefore understand how that which a man perceives to be good can be in reality an evil to him indeed the word reality only signifies strong belief mr escott the views of such a man i contend are false if he could be made to see the truth mr jenkinson he sees his own truth truth is that which a man troweth where there is no man there is no truth thus the truth of one is not the truth of another mr foster i am aware of the etymology but i contend that there is an universal and immutable truth deducible from the nature of things mr jenkinson by whom deducible philosophers have investigated the nature of things for centuries yet no two of them will agree in throwing the same conclusion mr foster the progress of philosophical investigation and the rapidly increasing accuracy of human knowledge approximate by degrees the diversities of opinion so that in process of time moral science will be susceptible of mathematical demonstration and clear and indisputable principles being universally recognized the coincidence of deduction will necessarily follow mr escott possibly when the inroads of luxury and disease shall have exterminated nine hundred and ninety nine thousand nine hundred and ninety nine of every million of the human race the remaining fractional units may congregate into one point and come to something like the same conclusion mr jenkinson i doubt it much i conceive if only we three were survivors of the whole system of terrestrial being we should never agree in our decisions as to the cause of the calamity mr escott 
be that as it may i think you must at least assent to the following positions that the many are sacrificed to the few that ninety-nine in a hundred are occupied in a perpetual struggle for the preservation of a perilous and precarious existence while the remaining one wallows in all the redundancies of luxury that can be wrung from their labours and privations that luxury and liberty are incompatible and that every new want you invent for civilized man is a new instrument of torture for him who cannot indulge it they had now regained the shores of the lake when the conversation was suddenly interrupted by a tremendous explosion followed by a violent splashing of water and tremendous sounds of tumult and confusion which induced them to quicken their pace towards the spot whence they proceeded End of chapter 7